Now, I want you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5 as we continue this great chapter in this great sermon in this great book. Uh, thank you for standing as we open the Word of God together. Matthew 5, remember, is the first of three chapters that deal with what is called the Sermon on the Mount, one of the greatest sermons that's ever been preached, preached by the Lord Jesus himself, certainly to his 12 disciples that he had asked to follow him, but likely the crowd had grown much larger than that, and he chose a location there. We refer to it now as the Mount of Beatitudes on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, where it would have been a natural amphitheater. Last week we looked at those Beatitudes, the first 12 verses, and I want to pick up verses 13 through 16, and then we will see how they fit in the context of the rest of the chapter in just a moment. But he says, uh, beginning with verse 13, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, more literally there, it's if it loses its saltiness, and that's important, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they hide or, or, or do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Lord, we pray that the Spirit of God will speak to our hearts, will enlighten us with the truth of this text, not only enlighten us, but equip us and empower us to go out and live what we believe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, Yesterday, I have to admit, I was somewhat lazy at times. Everyone deserves a little bit of rest, I guess, but Somewhat lazy at times, taking in a lot of football, noticing there were a lot of crazy new uniforms, different ways people were kind of lining up and running plays. There were all kinds of huddles taking place, fast huddles, slow huddles, no huddles, sideline huddles. There were audibles, there were different styles and, and approaches to the game. Lots of fans gathered in a lot of places. And they were watching, and, and, and many of you men like me, not so interested in what was going on at halftime and in the holy huddles and all of this kind of thing. That we were watching to see execution. Now one way I can tell men are watching to see execution is because they usually keep the remote close by on football Saturday. And when one scene slows down or comes to a halftime, what do they do? The ladies know they change the channel to check the other games. They want to see action. The truth of the matter is, fans aren't gathered in a stadium or before television sets because they actually enjoy watching huddles or watching plans being drawn up, discussions taking place, audibles being called. The fans are looking for the action. They want to know whether or not, after having huddled, a team is going to execute if they're going to be successful now the church has a playbook it's called the bible it's full of the principles and precepts the action plans what we're supposed to be about we gather on the lord's day for a very important huddle <laughs> we're gathered here in this place to look at the action plans and we do this on a weekly basis we do this on wednesday nights 
We gather together in small groups. We have small huddles. We have large huddles. We have pep rallies where we try to uh, fire everybody up and, and motivate them. But the world is not interested too much in what's taking place in this building this morning. They're not so concerned with our huddles. They're not too threatened by or too upset with or even inspired by our small group get-togethers or the audibles we call. What they're observing is whether or not when we break huddle we're going to execute, whether we're going to live what we say we believe. Dr. Tony Evans referring to the Dallas Cowboys said that the thousands that he saw gather there, he never saw them show a lot of interest in how the Cowboys huddle. But he said he saw a lot of passion, and we see it around here too, a lot of passion in their response to what they do when they break huddle, whether or not they execute. The church, as we speak about being royalty in Matthew's gospel, it's, it can be to the world a lot like the British royal family. Well, we know they're there. We know they exist. We know that we can observe the things they do. But when it comes to their influence, when it comes to their, their governing status, well, it really no longer exists. They're kind of out of the picture when it comes to the reality of what Great Britain does. But we know that they're called the royal family. They're kind of ancient, kind of stoic. They're kind of there, so we kind of keep up with it a little bit. Has the church been relegated as a sideshow to the world when it comes to execution? Jesus lays out these principles in Matthew's Gospel, especially in the Sermon on the Mount. And he lays out these principles expecting not just for us to gain a head knowledge, but for us to go out and execute, knowing that his disciples will one day go mad, M-A-D. They will go make a difference. I believe we need Christians in the world today who, who will say, I'm going to go mad. You might write that somewhere on, on, on your notebook or, or, or on the, the margins of your Bible or somewhere that you're reminded in your car as you're riding down the road. M-A-D, get mad. Go make a difference in the world. I don't want to leave the world the way I found it. I don't want to leave my world the way I see it today. I want to make a difference. So I want us to consider some components of nobility that make a difference this morning. Some, some components of, of what we're supposed to be about as the body of Christ, as royalty, as, as nobility in this world. Nobility that makes a difference. And the first area here that we're looking at in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, is the area of influence. The area of influence. I believe when he speaks of salt here, he's speaking of ethics that preserve a community or a people group. Ethics that preserve. And so he says, you're the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its... And again, flavor is not the best translation for the word here. It's saltiness. It's, it's speaking here of preservation power. Of preserving if the salt loses its saltiness, it's good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled upon by men. So, so the word here is more than 
being a flavor that makes the world more palatable, a lot of times that's the way we see it. We're the salt of the earth. God looks down and says, man, the earth is nasty and it's dirty and it doesn't taste good. But if we put a little salt on it, then I can kind of handle it. Well, Jesus knows this is a sin-fallen world. He came to die for the sins of this world. And it's not that he has to make the world more palatable so he can stand it, so he sprinkles us on it to flavor it. It's that in this day and time, we've got to think back a couple thousand years ago when there was no such thing as a refrigerator that you could plug in or a freezer where you could preserve meats. But they used salt as a preservative. And salt being a preservative could preserve something and make it meaningful and, and, and useful and worth something. And so he says, you're the salt of the earth. You bring meaning, you bring preservation. Your ethics, your principles of morality should be evident. And when we're influencing others in these Biblical standards, when these kingdom principles that we're talking about in Matthew's gospel, when these kingdom principles are embraced by a community, you are preserving that community. When these kingdom principles are embraced by a state, you are preserving that state. When the kingdom principles of God's word are preserved by a nation, you are preserving a nation. And when the world gets hold of these principles, you are preserving a world by embracing an ethics that is built on a biblical Christian worldview, and Matthew is laying out these kingdom principles from the first chapter into the last, what believers are to be about. A great illustration of this is found in Genesis chapter 18, where God is letting Abraham know that he's going to destroy Sodom. And Abraham is pleading on behalf of Sodom, and I believe we're called to plead on behalf of of our community and, and, and our county and our state and our nation. Abraham is pleading on behalf of Sodom and said, Lord, would you not preserve Sodom for the sake of the righteous? Lord, let's say I go out and I can only find 50 righteous. Would you, would you spare Sodom for the sake of the righteous? And God says, sure, Abraham. We realize God is omniscient. He, he knew the story in Sodom. But he said, Abraham, you, you find 50 righteous Sure, I'll preserve Sodom. Well, some of you know the story. Abraham comes back. He looks it over and he says, uh, how about 45? God says, okay, 45. Abraham says, how about 40? Would you preserve Sodom for the sake of the 40? How about 30? If I can find 30 righteous in Sodom, would you preserve Sodom for the sake of the righteous? Okay, Abraham, 30. You find 30 righteous and I'll preserve this city. How about 20, God? How about 10? And when you read the conclusion of the matter, Sodom was destroyed, not because it was so permeated with wickedness, but because Abraham could not find 10 righteous individuals that were seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness living according to his standards. And I've been guilty of saying, and other pastors have been guilty of saying statements like this, that if God does not judge America, then he'll have to apologize for Sodom and Gomorrah. But keep in mind, God may preserve a nation, not because we're so great in everything that we do, but because there are some great believers in this nation who love the Lord Jesus Christ, who will not compromise their standards. God may preserve a nation because 80% of missions dollars to support 
missions around the world come out of this nation. God may preserve a nation because there are people trying to take a stand for the Lord Jesus Christ in this church, in these local schools, in this community, in this state, and people that are willing to to run for office and take a stand even in Washington, D.C. For the sake of the righteousness, the sake of the righteous few, God would have preserved a community. But Abraham couldn't find ten righteous. So the question is, are we out there influencing the world with our ethical standards? Are we guiding our families on the authority of this book right here? Are we trying some kind of form of 21st century pragmatism? Well, whatever works. How are we leading our families? Are we leading our businesses by kingdom principles? Are we, we heard last Sunday evening at our men's fellowship, are we handling our money with kingdom standards? Are we voting when we're called to go and let our voice be heard for those who stand on biblical principles, the sanctity of life, marriage being between a man and a woman for a lifetime? Do we take a stand in areas of education for the biblical worldview this week? I don't know about you, sometimes I think it's kind of exciting to see Madison County in the news for something other than a tornado coming through. You know what I'm saying? And don't they always interview the most articulate people when that happens? But it's good to see Madison County in the news, even if it's over controversy, even uh, this beautiful monument that's been placed outside the field house. My personal response when I saw it being a Red Raider myself was, man, that is beautiful. I love it. Somebody's going to get mad. But I think it's great. And when I see all the controversy taking place, my first response is I want to address those who are against it. And I want to remind them that Scripture is in and all around the framework of the very Constitution and our Declaration of Independence, everything this nation was founded on, our founding documents, the framework of those documents has Scripture all in them. As a matter of fact, if you take a visit to Washington, D.C. and begin to look at the national monuments, (laughs) you'll find Scripture all over the place. And men who were quoting that Scripture, engraved in these monuments. I want to let them know that the purpose of the Establishment Clause as interpreted again and again by our founding fathers, was not to keep the church's influence out of the state, but to keep the state's influence out of the church. And the common sense tells you that, and we need to take a stand for righteousness. It wasn't freedom of or from religion, it was freedom of religion. And I see nothing in this monument that tries to force anything on anybody. And so my, my word to the, the cynic and the critic outside of the faith that will go out and probably spend a 5 or $10 bill today that says, in God we trust, is, really? This is the fight you want to pick? Really? Or the, the famous ESPN adage, come on, man. That's all you've got? Because in myself, I'm saying, 
how sad that you've got no more of a life than to get upset about that. And, and as I had that thought, how sad that you have no more of a life, the Spirit of God convicted me and said, Robbie, that's right. They don't have life. They don't know me. They don't have a relationship with the living God of this universe. And so they're going to get upset with these trivial things and what you need to do. And, and, and so now let me turn the attention from addressing those outside of the faith who might attack to speaking to the church for a moment. God says to us, we need to be sure we respond with intelligence and grace in these matters. Salt is a preservative. And we're called to win this world. See, I know the nature. I grew up here in Madison County, so I can say this. Our tendency is to say, this is where we stand. If you don't like it, you can leave. Our tendency is to say that nationwide, isn't it? This is where we stand as a nation. If you don't like it, you can leave. But God has said to Christians, guess what? You're the aliens and strangers. <laughs> You're the pilgrims. Believers. This is not your eternal home. You're to be winsome with biblical principles. You're to try to convert them and let your speech be with what Colossians forces with grace, seasoned with salt like a preservative. You're to be winsome and try to, with grace, win them over. So let's be sure that we speak up for truth, but that we speak the truth in love. Sometimes that means we just simply say to people that don't understand, hey, I don't understand why you don't understand. Help me understand. <laughs> Help me see where you're coming from. I'm sure that Coach Smith would tell you monuments don't win ball games. And I remember when I played football at Madison County, it was seemed pretty obvious that God was much more for Stevens County than he was for Madison County back in those days. But there is something that is winsome. That is your life and my life. See, Paul was trying to convince the church at Corinth that their ethics needed to match up with kingdom principles. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 2, Paul said this, he said, The only letter of recommendation we need is you, yourselves. Your lives are a letter written on our hearts. Everyone can read it and recognize our good work among you. What he was saying is, listen, they may not get their hands on these scrolls that we're writing, but they will see you. And you can remove Scripture from the Washington monuments. You can remove Scripture from monuments in Danielsville, Georgia. What this world needs to see is the Word of God being lived out in you and in me. We're the monuments of His grace. We're the trophies of His grace. And so if we aren't living it out, we don't need to speak up for it in the public arena. I had at least one individual share with me this week. My fear would be, that those who stand up for this monument wouldn't live out the character that it calls for and then become an embarrassment to the kingdom. It's kind of that uh, NASCAR imagery that Kent and I observe all the time being NASCAR fans. 
If you go to a NASCAR race, there's two kings, Jesus and Budweiser. Oh, and Richard Petty. And it just doesn't all match up. And so that's the biggest fear, that there would be people taking a bold stand for something that they're not even willing to live because only 20% of this county is going to be in church today. You're the salt of the earth. Let them see that, listen, if they remove the word of God from the courthouse, the schoolhouse, and everywhere else, they can't remove it from your hearts. And they've got to see it in your life if it's going to be real. You're the salt of the earth. And if we're not living it, we need to be silent about it. And if we are living it, that will probably be enough. The second area here I want you to see as he moves from this preservation to proclamation, we need to illuminate. Illuminate speaks of the efforts that proclaim kingdom principles. See, being comes before doing. We need to be the salt of the earth that precedes doing the efforts which become the light of the world. You are, verse 14, the light of the world. We know that Jesus came as the light in John's Gospel. He said, I am the light of the world. But because He lives in us, He shines through us, and as believers we have become in Him the light of the world. In verse 15, He says, or the second part of verse 14, a city that is on a hill cannot be hidden. It's out there. People are going to see it. Nor do they light a lamp and hide it under a basket. But they put it on a lampstand, and it gives light to all that are in the house. And in the way that that light would light a house were to let our light so shine before men that they may see our good works, efforts there that glorify and bring them to a place where they will glorify our Father who is in heaven. Works speak of those things that occupy us. That's why we have the word occupation. Those things that we work toward. And our good works will bring glory to God and cause others to see how real He is because of what He's doing in our life. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 23, we're reminded whatever we do in word or deed, we're to work at it with all of our heart. We're to do it for God and not for man, but we're to do it that God might be glorified in us. When you look at uh, Ephesians 2.10, again, this verse keeps coming back as we study Matthew's Gospel. Ephesians 2.10, we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And we're getting in on what God has called us to do, doing the work that He's calling us to do. When years ago at kids' camp, we took a little field trip to Cumberland Caverns. I remember going into that room where we went, and some of the ones who are probably teenagers now were little kids back then, they, they took us into this cave and into this room in the caverns. They turned out all the lights, and I mean, it was so dark, you could not see your hand in front of your face. No matter how long you sat there and, and allowed your eyes to get acclimated to the darkness, you still couldn't see anything. And it only took the smallest light, and after the darkness had, uh, had engulfed us for a little while, a light comes on, and it seems brighter than ever. They had kind of a, a little spectacular show for us that you could see different things being lit up within the caverns. And they shone all the more brightly because we had been exposed to the darkness. We're to let our light so shine before men that they see our good works glorify our Father in heaven. That means loving loud with missions and evangelism. The church being out there, being a blessing, and not always asking for something from the community, but pouring our lives into the community. 
finding our place of service in the kingdom, serving God in the local church, finding your ministry, your spiritual gifts, the team that you need to be a part of. It's the church also being out there, that city on a hill. The work of putting our ethics into efforts in the home, on the job, at school, in our areas of recreation. The work God's called us to do. God is giving so many of you a platform. You realize God has blessed you with a platform in your workplace by the position that He's granted you there. God has blessed you with a platform in your home. As a mom or as a dad, God has given you a platform, perhaps in the public schools or in private schools. Maybe as a teacher, maybe as a student. God gives you a platform when you become a part of a club and you have an opportunity to give a speech or when you are on an athletics team. God gives you a platform. And people are to see our works for Christ on and in those platforms so that we're pointing people to Him and not to ourselves. We're to let our light shine in every context. Someone has said before, I can't hear what you are saying because your actions speak so loudly. Let them see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We can make a choice to curse the darkness. And I'm tempted to do that as much as you. To say this is a dark world, this is an evil world, and it's always attacking the things of God. Or we can light a candle and make a difference in the world. And let our light so shine before them that they'll see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. And after addressing the ethics that preserve and the efforts that proclaim, Jesus offers some illustrations throughout the rest of this chapter. And I'll just kind of touch on a few of these and you can kind of see where he's going. And then you ask how these principles are personalized in the examples in your own life. In verse 20 of this chapter, he's telling us that our righteousness needs to exceed the righteousness of of the scribes and the Pharisees. And unless it does, he says, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You want to be a part of the kingdom? You want to live out kingdom principles? It can't be outwardly. The scribes and the Pharisees wanted everything to look right on the outside. They wanted everybody to look at them and say, man, they're righteous. They're holier than thou. They've got it all together. But Jesus was saying, your righteousness needs to exceed that. You you mean I had to live more religiously than them? No, it needed to be something that started in the heart. That's what he meant by your righteousness exceeding. Is is let Jesus be real on the inside and let it begin to work its way out in your life. And so for those who would say, well, I'm a pretty good person. I'm pretty righteous. I've kind of got it all together. Jesus began to confront that attitude in the scribes and the Pharisees because somebody would come along, and people would even say this today in the 21st century, well, I've never killed anybody. So he deals with the subject of murder and and the hatred that goes along with it. Verse 21, you've heard it said, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say that whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raga, shall be in danger of the council, but whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Then he deals with the bitterness against the brother. 
and how you need to get that out of your life. What is this example? He's saying the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. Maybe we've never killed anybody, but you felt like it before. It's a heart problem. We need a heart transformation. So he deals with that hatred that we might feel in our hearts. We see that throughout the world, and we need to live differently. Deals with the area of adultery. Later, when we get to Matthew chapter 19, we'll really expound God's principles on marriage and, and adultery and divorce and all of those things. But right here, he just deals with the heart of the matter. You have heard that it was said, verse 27, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, whoever looks on a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so the Pharisees thought everything was A-OK until he brought up the fact that the issue is the lust of the heart. Then he talks about dealing ruthlessly with sin. And by the way, the Bible contains literature that's that, not that much different from literature today other than it is the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God. But he makes statements from hyperbole. Like, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. Now, if we took that quite literally, every one of us would be walking around with our eyes plucked out, right? What is he saying? Using hyperbole to get their attention, he's saying, deal ruthlessly with sin. If your right hand, verse 30, causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. He says, do, do whatever you have to do to protect yourself from the temptations of this world. So it may not literally mean pluck your eyes out, cut your hand off, but certainly for most of us it means better have a filter on your internet Better guard the communication that comes into your kids' rooms via the cell phone. Better watch out what's going on in their movies, in their entertainment, what we tolerate. Even kicking back like yesterday watching football, it meant we had to change the channel quite a few times during commercials. Hello? It says deal ruthlessly with sin. The heart of the problem... It's the problem of the heart. Deal with that. Some examples. He just makes it personal. Live by kingdom standards when we, we stay true to our word. In verses 33 to 37 in this text, you have heard it said, Of old you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. In other words, it's okay to swear by whatever you have to swear by just so you keep your word. And he takes it a step further. He says, I say to you, do not swear at all. Neither by heaven nor by, for, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black, nor let your yes be yes, and your, uh, or he says, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. So I encourage people, and, and by the way, it's interesting, this follows the area of adultery, because on your wedding day, a man shall, or should be able to stand before a woman and recite his vows and say, I have every intention to keep these vows, and you can believe me on that, and a woman should be able to do the same thing. And we take them at a word, a business transaction, take them at a word. We don't have to swear by something. It used to drive me crazy if people come and, and, and want to plan a wedding service. If it steps on toes here, well, I'm not going to apologize. If it steps on toes, it steps on toes, but... 
somebody wants you to come and plan a wedding service, and they say, here's the song we picked out. I cross my heart and promise to. You don't need to cross your heart. You need to cross your heart. You need to marry somebody else. I swear by the moon and the stars in the sky. Jesus said, no, 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 you don't need all that. Your vows should be sufficient. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be someone who is trusted to keep their word. How we live out the kingdom principles in our life. Be willing to even go the extra mile. Be willing, as he concludes the chapter, to love your enemies. And even do good for those who are doing evil to you. And we could go on and on and on. When I talk about being our ethics, becoming our doing, our efforts, there is, there's an illustration, there's an example after example after example, and I'm depending completely upon the Holy Spirit of God this morning to impress upon your heart what it means for you when you leave this place today. See, the Spirit of God's already spoken to me on this matter. Robbie, here's what it means for you when you leave this place today. What you believe becoming what you do. Salt and light in this world. So I'm going to ask you as we conclude this morning, you ask the Spirit of God what your example is, how it's personalized in your life. Would you do that? Would you bow your heads with me right now?